Well, good morning. What a blessing it is to be back in God's house with God's people. Amen. So thankful for another opportunity to be able to share God's word with you this morning. Uh, Psalm 118.24, David says, this is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And that's exactly what we're doing today, right? But you know, the awesome thing about that word day and that verse is not necessarily a new day in which the Lord has given us another day, even though we should be thankful for another day, right? But it's that we're being made new each day. So I believe he's talking about the day of salvation. And that day has already been 2,000 years long, right? Now that's something to rejoice and be glad about. Here in our church from time to time, we mention how God is sovereign. So I want to start us off this morning by quoting something from a man named S.M. Lockridge. And some of us have heard Pastor Kevin mention him before. But S.M. Lockridge preached about 40 years from around 1953 to about 1993. And I don't know if some of you may have known it, but the S.M. in his name actually stands for Shadrach Meshach. And Craig is smiling right now with an ear-to-ear grin, and he knows where I'm going with this. So, and back in the 70s, anyway, he said that one of the big questions that was asked a lot were, was, where did God come from? And as he was preaching a sermon in Detroit one time, he answered that question with four simple words, which were, God came from nowhere. And some of you probably know where I'm going with this. As I said, when I seen Craig smiling, I thought he, he knew what I was up to. But, and Pastor Kevin and our freedom, that last folks, they probably know. But y'all just bear with me for a second. Well, after he preached his sermon, a man walked up to him and confronted him and said, Pastor, how could you stand up there and say such a thing, that God came from nowhere? That doesn't make any sense. And he said, let's just be reasonable about it, reasonable about it. And he said, okay, if you just want to be reasonable about it, let's be reasonable. And he said, God came from nowhere because there wasn't anywhere for him to come from. And coming from nowhere, he stood on nothing. And the reason he stood on nothing, there was nowhere for him to stand. And standing on nothing, he reached out where there was nowhere to reach, caught something where there was nothing to catch, hung something on nothing and told it to stay there. And he said, you'll find that in Job 26 and verse 7, that he hung this world on nothing. And standing on nothing, he took the hammer of his own will and struck the anvil of his omnipotence. And sparks flew therefrom, and he caught them on the tips of his fingers and slung them out into space and decked the heavens with stars. And nobody said a word. And the reason... Nobody said anything was because there wasn't anybody to say anything. And so God said himself, that's good. And the reason I wanted to say that this morning was to say this, folks, we serve an awesome, powerful, and mighty God today, and he's still holding it all up today and working it all out for our good. 
including our salvation for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Amen? Amen. Okay, now we can get down to the main event. Our message this morning will be in Philippians chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 19 through 26. And I figured since we've already been over verses 1 through 18 that we may as well go ahead and continue with chapter 1. And since it's been a while, we'll just go over a little bit of what we learned in those few verses. So in verses 1 through 11, we spoke of some of the characteristics of a true believer. And if you'll remember, we saw that Paul painted the perfect picture of the model church in Philippi and how they were a congregation that loved one another, growing in their faith together supporting the work of spreading the gospel. And we saw that what spiritual maturity looked like, which was going forward in our walk with Christ and to walk worthy of our calling by bringing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ forward and making disciples. And as verse nine says, having abounding love for one another, growing in our knowledge of him with spiritual discernment and integrity And that true believers glorify God with their lives and how this glorification will be brought to completion in heaven. And in verse 11, Paul used the words fruits of righteousness to describe the work that he wants God to do in their lives. And he expresses his thankfulness and his prayers go out to him for their support. We see that Paul developed several key themes themes in his letter to the Philippians And the main theme in chapter one is that believers are to be joyful. And by example, he shows shows them that contentment contentment is more than just happiness, while happiness is a temporary state that comes and goes with moods and circumstances. The joy that Paul is talking about comes through a source that's greater than our own because it comes through a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's only through him that we can have this type of joy, through any and all circumstances. And in verses 12 through 18, we learn what some of the marks of spiritual maturity were, which was sharing the gospel through all these circumstances. Being fearless and courageous to boldly speak the word of God. To encourage others to share the gospel, to always respond in a godly manner with the right motives. And one of our last marks of spiritual maturity was that as Christians, we're to be gospel-centered. And Paul ended verse 18 by using the word rejoice twice by saying, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I'll rejoice. And he says, I'll rejoice. And we spoke of how he repeated this twice the second time Because the second time he mentioned the word rejoice, he meant that he would continue to rejoice. And now we're about to find out why. Verses 19 through 26 of chapter 1 reads, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provisions of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, 
having the desire to part and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I'll remain and continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. So while Paul's in prison here and he's facing trial, possibly for a death sentence, he sees deliverance at its end. And in verse 19 where he says, I know that this will turn out for my de deliverance. I looked up the word deliverance. And in its place were words like salvation, liberty, health, freedom. And in the King James translation, the word salvation is used here. It's where we get the word soteria, which would mean preservation from impending death with focus on the physical aspect. So he's not talking about the salvation of his soul, but the prolongment of his physical life and complete deliverance from anything that would hinder Christ from being glorified in his body. With focus on the physical aspect, later on in his life, in 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8, he says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul sensed that that was the time of his death, but while he was writing the Philippian church, he senses deliverance, and he gives us two reasons in verse 19, why he believes he'll be freed. One is through prayer, and the other is help given by Jesus Christ, the spirit of Jesus Christ. Folks, prayers of the believer are powerful. They're not just some kind of a bunch of careless words thrown together or good wishes or good thinking or good thoughts or some kind of psychological exercises to help us feel better. I believe Paul's saying through their prayers that he would be delivered because he believed and he trusted in the promises of the sovereign, holy God of this universe. Amen? And some may think if God is sovereign, why pray? at all if he already knows what's going to come to pass. We pray because God commands in his holy word that we pray. It's not some kind of optional duty for the Christian. He, he not only commands us to pray, but in James chapter 4, he says that we should make our requests made known. And he also says we don't have because we don't ask. And Paul also believed the last part of James 5, 16 that says an effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So he believed through all the prayers of the righteous folks from the church at Philippi that he would be delivered. And not only that, as he said in verse 6, he was confident that God's word and his will would be carried out and his perfect plan would be made complete. And the reason that he says he knows this is because, as the end of verse 19 says, he knows that it's the Holy Spirit that gives him the power to remain steadfast and true through difficult times. Folks, you know the, through the Holy Spirit, we have that same power to get us through difficult times in our lives as well. The same kind of power that Paul had through the Holy Spirit lives in us. Amen? He said that he would be completely set free from shame and cowardice. In verse 20, he says 
that it's his expectation and hope that he would not be ashamed, but instead will have boldness. The words expectation and hope are words of faith. So Paul's saying they didn't want to be ashamed of his witness while in this life or to be ashamed when he came into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 28, it says, Now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may, not, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. See, John mentioned the fact here that when Christ comes to take his church with him, it's possible for believers to be ashamed at his appearing. Can you imagine that? And as Christians, we should all bear that in mind. That's something to think about, right? Here's a good question. I mentioned this in our Thursday night means a lot. But what do we want to be doing when Christ returns? You see, Paul's expectation wasn't based on his own human strength or courage, but on the Lord. And his hope is that he'll allow the strength of the Holy Spirit to win over when these kind of times come along. With all boldness, with all courage, he's expecting and hoping that Jesus Christ will be magnified in his body, whether by life or by death. To magnify means to bring in closer, to make something larger or bigger, right? And most everyone knows here this morning that I love to hunt. Come October, I'm gone a lot. And I think Pam loves it when October gets here too. And it ain't just because she likes fried backstrap, if you know what I mean. She's ready for me to get in them woods, y'all. <laughs> I can't imagine why she would need a break from a guy like me. So anyway, when I'm sitting in my deer stand and I see a deer that has horns, we have a rule in the state of Texas that those horns have to be 13 inches wide. So I have to dial my scope in on those horns to see if the inside spread is wide enough because they say when those horns are outside of the ears, when the ears are erect, they're at least 13 inches wide. What a crazy rule, right? So I magnify my scope to bring those horns in real close so I can see them more clearly. And so this is what Paul wanted to do. He wanted to make the Lord Jesus Christ bigger in the eyes of others, make him more real, more valuable, more important in the eyes of others. Folks, we magnify Christ by making, making him known to others, and we do that by making a bold proclamation of who he really is and surrendering our life to him. See, Paul, to Paul, this liberty and salvation is to be free from shame by being a bold pro proclaimer of the Lord, even when folks may not like him for doing it. As believers, shouldn't magnifying Christ and making him known to others be at the top of our priority list. Verse 21 is the major theme of our text this morning where Paul says, for me to live, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So what does it mean to say living is Christ? I remember when I was going to school, my life kind of revolved around sports. I couldn't wait to play the next football or baseball game. And so, some folks like vacation and they like to travel, go on cruises. Some like their vacations for fishing or hunting. I'm getting close to home with that one, ain't I, Bree? Uh, 
So folks, what does it really mean to proclaim, you know, do, when we really proclaim our lives? I know for myself, for Christ, I know for myself, for a long time, I was just going through the motions with Christ just being a part of my life. And you know, it's easy to get caught up in that kind of thing. It's just the world we live in today, right? And I believe that this is the point that Paul was trying to make here because he was saying that Christ was everything to him. Living his life completely for the Lord Jesus Christ, to die is gain. And so to die, would even have, he would even have more of Christ because then he would then be with him. So what does it mean to truly live for the Lord Jesus Christ? Many of us as Christians know verse 21 by heart, but do we really and honestly practice it with our hearts every day? So first of all, as believers, wouldn't one of the first things that we should live for be submitting to God's plan for our life? And you might say, well, I don't know what God's plan is for my life. Well, you know, for a while I didn't either, really. But I know that as Christians, one of his plans for us all is to help us work out our salvation. God didn't just save us to give us a free ticket to heaven, amen? Where he used the word deliverance in verse 19 is the salvation that he's talking about, the progressive sense of salvation. Philippians chapter 2 and verses 12 through 13, he says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in the absence, my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So this aspect of salvation is our being made into the image of Christ. So God didn't just save us to enter heaven, did he? But also to be made in the image of his son. And God uses everything, good things, bad things, to make us into the, to his image. Or some things that we may think that are bad. And this is the promise in Romans 8, 29, 28, 29. We know all, that all things work together for the good for those who love God, who were called according to his purpose. Because those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. To be made in the image of Christ and to become more and more like him each day is the good thing that God promises to us as believers. And this is what the deliverance, this is the de deliverance that Paul was confident in. He was confident that he would look like Christ and that he would be glorified in him, whether by life or by death. You see, Paul didn't know for sure whether he would die, live or die, or even if he would be released from prison. But he did know that either way, that it was God's will that Christ be glorified in and through his life. No matter what the situation was, even though he may not have fully understood it all, he knew that it would all work out toward his deliverance and his sanctification. And this is what he meant when he said to live is Christ and to die is gain. Folks, truly submitting to God's plan for our lives means trusting in his perfect plan 
for our life, through the good times and the bad times. You see, making us like his son sometimes it may mean that we'll have to go through trials and suffering. <clears throat> we have some folks here that's not too long ago been through some of those trials and suffering. But we persevere through them because we know we have a sovereign God to see us through it all, just as Paul did. In verse 19 again, where Paul said that he knew that it would all turn out for his deliverance through the prayers of the church and the provisions of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, this was his confidence in the Holy Spirit and his dependence on the body of Christ. So secondly, as believers, to live for the Lord Jesus Christ, we must depend on the body of Christ. You see, Paul knew that he wasn't in this alone, and he knew that for him to be faithful, he had to depend on the Holy Spirit and the prayers of the saints. Folks, I believe that we have such a sweet fellowship here in this church, in this church body. I also know that as believers, we know that we don't have to go through trials and suffering alone. Amen? Because we are one body of believers united together, and this is part of what it means to live for Christ. We not only depend on God, but we also depend on the body. Some folks may think they can live for Christ without depending on his body. And that may be possible to a certain extent. But listen, we can't fully live for Christ if we're not fully dependent on him and his body. This is what Paul confronted the Corinthians about in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 21 through 22, where he said, and the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. You know, some members may not seem as strong as others or even seem to be as, poor, as important as others, but we need them all because they all work together for the good of the whole body, right? Folks, we are stronger together than we ever will be apart. Amen? If there was ever anyone who ever walked this earth that could ever have been independent, it was Jesus Christ. But listen to what he said in Mark 14, 34. He said, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. Before Jesus went to the cross and he took the sin of the whole world upon himself, he calls on his disciples, the ones that God had given to him, for a prayer meeting. Folks, if Jesus can show us in his word that he could be dependent on the people that God had given him, then we as his followers should be able to do so as well, right? If submitting to God's plan for our life is God's will for our life, then glorifying him with our life should be part of that plan, right? If we're to live for Christ, then we must exalt Christ in all that we do. And the word exalt here in verse 20 means just that, to glorify. As mentioned a few minutes ago, it means to magnify to bring in closer in order that we may see something more clearly. And what this meant to Paul was that 
He wanted to bring Christ into focus, no matter what the circumstances were. While he was in prison writing this very letter, he wanted the light of Christ to shine through in his life so that those around him could see it. Folks, as I heard Brother Kevin mention here a while back, when we're going through trials and difficulties, that's when our light should shine so, so bright. Amen? That's when people ought to really be able to see the Lord within us. They ought to be able to see that we have a prayer line. He wanted everyone to see that. Paul wanted everyone to see the guards who were chained to him, the ones who brought him his food, his cellmates, his fellow Christians who visited with him. He prayed that they would all see Christ in him. Folks, shouldn't exalting the Lord Jesus Christ as Paul did, even in prison, as he did, be the very reason behind the life of every believer? And not just some things, but in all things. He said in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Everything that we do, even the things that we think are just ordinary things in everyday life, our eating and our drinking, they should be done in such a way that Christ is glorified. That should be our purpose. That should be our aim. Amen? And that was Paul's earnest expectation as he went through this trial. As believers, to live for Christ we must have the right view of eternity. In verses 21 through 23, Paul expresses that he was torn between waiting to go to be with the Lord, which is better of the two, or staying with the Philippians believers because they needed him. You see, he didn't, just, he didn't cling to the things of this world. His whole life was about worshiping and serving the Lord and living a Christ-like life. He was wanting the Lord Jesus Christ to live out his life through him. In these three verses, we learn what it really means for a believer to truly live for Christ. Because as Christians, it explains how we view the end of things. Our view of the end affects the way that we live in the here and now, right? You see, a true believer views death as gain. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 32, Paul said, If the dead are not raised, let us eat, eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If there is no resurrection and no heaven to look forward to, why not live for pleasure like everybody else and just have the attitude, if it feels good, just do it? I used to be there. I know what that's like. That's not the kind of life I want to live anymore. How about y'all? But if there is, in fact, a resurrection and an eternity, and there is, then it should constantly affect the way we live. And that's why Paul viewed death as gain. And also why he chose to daily live for Christ. Do we daily live for Christ to glorify him in all that we do? You see, Paul believed that to be absent from the body meant to be present with the Lord. And so he gives us a word picture here in verse 23 with the word depart. Now, I like to look up certain words sometimes. So I looked up this word depart and it said to leave, especially in order to start a journey. 
And it's used here as a nautical term, a loosening of the anchor before setting sail, so to speak. A sailor lives for the journey. Shouldn't we be living for the journey, folks? Death for the Christian is to leave the body. It's more than leaving this life. It's a separation from the body. And Paul said, I have a desire to leave this body. He knew the soul and the spirit doesn't remain in the body. Death, they leave the body. And when a Christian goes to a graveside service, they only take the remains of their loved ones because guess what? They're not there. Amen? They're not there. Because they've loosened the anchor of their soul and departed into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul knew that his physical death and this type of departure would be better than sitting in a prison cell in chains or living in this sinful world that we live in. And he didn't only say that it would be better, even much better, but he said that it would be very much better. His desire was to be with the Lord. And this should be our desire and whatever Christian longs for. Amen? To be with the Lord Jesus Christ. Most of us will probably know what this is, but listen to these words I'm about to quote and see if they sound familiar to you. They say, we long for that day when Jesus comes again, when sorrow and pain will all come to an end, when justice is done and evil cast away. Oh, may we all be found in Christ that day. That sound familiar? It ought to because it's a song that we've been singing quite often here in our church called We Long For That Day. And it's an awesome song. You know our church, we just mentioned last Sunday night how very particular our church is in choosing our music. I asked Pastor Kevin a couple of years ago about singing a certain song. Let him listen to it. I said, can we sing that? Because that was when I was playing the drums. Probably not. What? Listen to the song again. So I listened to it, and he said, is that song about us or is it about God? Makes a difference, doesn't it? Are we lifting up God or are we lifting us, us up? Makes a difference. It makes a difference whose songs that we sing, right? Folks, we're strangers and aliens in this world. This world isn't our home. We're just passing through. This is a short journey. It's just a pit stop to compare to what's ahead. Amen? But while we're waiting and longing for that day, as Paul said, it should also mean fruitful labor for us. And while we're on this short journey, if we're truly his disciples, how do we complete our journey as we live on in the flesh? We continue abiding in Christ, making other disciples, which means bringing them to the Lord Jesus Christ. So our last way as believers to live for, as believers live for Christ is that we must be discipleship focused. And I believe we are here at Grace Point of Eagle Heights. In verse 25, but as Pastor Kevin also says, we all, all have room for improvement, right? There's always room for improvement. In verse 25, Paul says, Convinced of this, I know that I'll remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. 
See, I believe that Paul was confident and convinced that he was going to live, live on and stay with the Philippian believers a little longer. And the reason I know that is because I believe the Holy Spirit revealed that to him. He was still convinced and strongly compelled to stay on with them and all the other churches for their spiritual progress. And this progress that he's talking about was the greater progress of the gospel that he mentioned in verse 12, the advancement of the gospel, bringing folks to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, discipling them, discipling them, one anothering, as Pastor Kevin has been teaching to us. Folks, listen, when someone gets saved, they must be discipled, right? To learn, they must be taught. Paul wanted the church to advance in the gospel and continue to grow so others would follow in the same path. And notice the two words here in verse 25 after progress. He says, joy in the faith. You know, some may see the Christian life in this world as a cheerless battle with the flesh, but not Paul. For him, living for Christ here on earth was to be joyful and dying for the cause of Christ even more joyful. The joy expressed in verse 25 and 26 is a joy that's shared among the unity of believers. Not isolated from them. So if folks are trying to be a lone ranger Christian and wonder where the joy is, maybe it's time to stop going it alone and get with the body of Christ. Amen? It should be every believer's desire as Christians to disciple others. While Christ was on this earth, he discipled others. And to really live for him, we should do the same, right? In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, let's recall what Paul said to Timothy. He said this, he said, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. See, in this verse, we have four generations of Christians discipling one another. Paul taught Timothy. Timothy taught others, other men, and those men taught others. And I'm sure that it didn't stop there. To live for Christ, we must be a disciple that disciples others, which means to live a godly life with others, to meet with them, share our burdens with them, pray with them, apply the word of God with them, worship together with them. We've talked about several ways that a believer can and should live for Christ. But the key word that I mentioned was believer. Do you really have a desire to be a disciple that disciples others? For someone to truly live for Christ, they must be a believer. Are you a believer this morning? Have you trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior? And if not, you can do that right here, right where you are, right now. You don't have to come forward. You don't have to run around in circles in this church. You can bow your head right where you are right now and ask Christ to forgive you for your sins and save your soul. Amen. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That word all in this verse means exactly what it says. We all have this problem called sin. In fact, Romans 3.10 says that they're none righteous, not even one. 
There's no way that we can attain any kind of righteousness on our own apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. At salvation, his righteousness is imputed unto us. And Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. So a wage is something that we earn, right? Every time we sin, we earn the wage of death. And this death here really means separation. We spoke of a while ago. In physical death, the body is separated from the spirit, but in spiritual death, man is separated from God. But here's the good news. Romans 6.23 doesn't stop at the wages of sin being death. It says, for the payoff of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, because of God's great love for us, he offered us a free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. And because it's a gift, a gift can't be earned, we can't, and we can't work to receive it. Doesn't that what Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 says? For by grace you are saved through faith. And this is not from yourself, it's a gift of God. It's not for work, from work, so that no one can boast. So going to church, being baptized, giving to the poor, doing any other righteous work does not save us. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Amen? Salvation is a gift, and it must be received from God. It's a, and it's a gift that's been prepared by his effort alone. And by the way, it's a gift that keeps on giving. Amen? So how do we receive this gift? The Bible says we must believe. Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. And this word believe here is very important because if we're going to receive this gift, we must believe in God's son, Jesus Christ. Because God loved us and cared for us, he didn't want us to be separated from him eternally. So he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. But we must not only believe, but with that belief, folks, we must confess. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you might be saved. Why are you shaking your head? It don't say that, does it? What does it say? You will be saved. It don't say no might. For with the heart one believes and has righteousness, and with the mouth one confesses and has salvation. Would you believe in him today? Confess him as Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so grateful and thankful this morning, Lord, for your word for salvation. And I pray, Lord, if there is anyone here this morning that can't truly say with all certainty, as Paul said in your word, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I pray that they'd come to know you this morning as Lord and Savior. Help us, Lord, to truly live for you by trusting in your perfect plans. By depending on the whole body, lifting up and glorifying you in all that we do. And I would pray that you would help us to live our lives in a way that others can truly see that we long for that day to be with you. And as your disciples, 
Lord, help us to have a great desire to make other disciples. Father, and be with our pastor and his family this morning. Be with Brother Kevin because he's not feeling good. We pray, Lord, for healing for him. And we thank you, Lord, for that family. And we're working so hard for this body of believers. And we pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Uh, PJ, we got any...